I'm going to combine my message with the children's message today because they are both uh, for everybody. I did run into a quote that I didn't have up ready because I was going to do it during the children's message. But I ran into this this morning and thought it fit so well. Um, so here this as sort of an introduction to the introduction to the sermon. It's from Francis Chan. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? We can't innovate on God. He's beyond our comprehension, and yet he invites us in. Isn't that a remarkable thing? I'm going to invite you to find Luke 15 in your Bible, on your electronic device, however you're reading it, but I encourage you and invite you, in fact, to find it. Uh, we are going through Luke 15 over the next five weeks, specifically the story of what's known as the prodigal son this week. As you're finding that, um, I want to make sure that we're, we're on the same page as we read through this, because we're basically going to read through this story for three weeks. So we're gonna, but we're going to look at the three different characters in it as we do so. And you need to put yourself in the story. Jesus intended it that way as he tells the story. He means for us even today, to put ourselves in the story and find ourselves in the story. To paraphrase uh, the theologian Helmut Thielicke, he says, if we don't put ourselves in the story, we never truly meet the Lord. So we need to put ourselves in the story. So I'm going to read uh, Luke 15, 1 and 2, and then we'll skip to verse 11 uh, and get into the prodigal son. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now to verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with them, him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you never disobeyed and never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you were always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Luke 15 contains three stories of things that are lost. It's not just three objects that are lost. There's more than that. But three stories of things that are lost. This is probably the most famous, most well-known of all of them. But you can see in all three stories, and we'll cover all three stories over the next five weeks, that God goes to great lengths to find what is lost, to find you and me when we are lost. And so the question is, not so much, uh, part of it is, are you lost this morning? You have to answer that first for this. But the question is, do you want to be found? Are you ready to come home if you're far from God? Now, as over the years, I mean, I think I misunderstood the word prodigal for a long time. And maybe you've never looked it up. Maybe you have. I don't know. But I always thought it meant somebody who was lost. And then you look it up and you realize, no, that's not what it means. It's not actually used in the text. It's just what's been applied to this. Just Google it. That's all you need to do. And you'll find out what it has meant and what it still means. It means spending money or resources freely and recklessly or wastefully extravagant. That's what prodigal means. So Garrett, for instance, is going to do a, a, a book study on Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God, uh, which is sort of the launch pad of what we're doing here, although this is, we're preaching the text, and we use Keller's ideas from time to time, but we're preaching the text, not Keller. Um, the idea is that God actually is the prodigal in this, in the sense that God is extravagant in finding and celebrating what is lost. The son is extravagant in spending uh, what was sort of his to spend, but he wastefully expends it and gets into trouble along the way. That's what prodigal means. We should, we have to keep in mind for all three weeks when we look at this, who's listening to this and all the stories. That's why I read verses one and two. So you have two different crowds. You have the tax collectors and the sinners. But let's just point out that if you're in the sinner crowd in Jesus' day, the tax collectors probably are considered lower than you, right? They're the real sinners. And then you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Pharisees would have been kind of in that category, but they're sort of an unofficial um, sort of religious leaders of their day. They had a kind of a coalition or a group, and there's not a huge number of them, but they held a lot of power over people, sort of influencers, if you will, in the large sense. What we should get from this story, among many other things, is God wants the lost to be found. God wants the lost to be found, and especially we're going to look at the character of the Father today, and I want us to just see that God celebrates when we come home. God celebrates when the lost are found, and we'll see that in the character of the Father this morning. So that's who we're looking at, the Father, and the character of the Father in this story. And let's just not mistake it that this is God in view here in the story. So let's go to verse 12. Here you have the younger son asking for his share of the estate. It says, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. 
Now, there's a lot of thoughts on what the younger son is actually saying, what's sort of the subtext underneath what the younger son is asking for. Uh, typically, you'll hear basically the son is saying, Father, I wish you were dead. That's probably akin to that. Now, we know that in the ancient world, somebody could actually give away portions of their inheritance before they died, but the insult is no less strong from the son. You know, it's not impossible to give the inheritance early, but it wasn't necessarily done. But you can see that the father is, is willing to share. And he says that to the older son later. But functionally, and here we'll quote Tim Keller, he comments about this. He says, the younger son was saying what, that he wants his father's things, but not his father. His relationship to the father has been a means to the end of enjoying his wealth. Now give me what is mine, is what he says. So yeah, he basically is saying, I wish you were dead, or at least not part of my life in any real way. I want your stuff. Now, what did the division of wealth look like when something like this happened? So for many of us, if uh, we have to pay out something in our day and age, there are numbers in a bank account for most of us. For the father, in this case, what we're talking about is land, which is probably the, the biggest asset they had, livestock, and possessions that were probably very personal in nature, in some cases, you know, made specially for them or handed down, that kind of thing. And even the livestock themselves, we know that sort of in that agrarian culture, they had some connection to the animals that was very deep and intimate in many ways. So it's not about money, although probably this stuff would have to be liquidated in some way for the son to spend it, and spend it extravagantly. Um, but he's receiving things that are probably of a very personal nature in many ways. I mean, it's, it's functionally like, uh, Dad, give me the car that's been sitting in the garage that you've been working on for a lifetime. I'm going to go sell it and buy beer. I mean, that's what he's doing, right? That's what he's saying he's going to do. And so that's what's going on. We should also recognize that the, just as an FYI, the way that, that this worked is the older son would get two-thirds of the estate and the younger son would get one-third because the older son always got a double portion. So if you had two kids, you divide it by three and give the older one two-thirds and the younger one one-third. So he's, not, he's getting a fair amount of stuff, just not as much as the older son would, but he's still getting a lot of this personal stuff. Well, we could ask a couple questions about the son and the father at this point. Is what the son experiences freedom once he's free of the father, free of the father? I mean, he thinks it is. He's free from the father to spend down everything he's got or do whatever he wants with it. But he ends up finding that that's a dead-end path. It's not as great as he thought it was to be free from the father. What God actually wants of us, and God, the freedom God gives us is to be free to live in God's presence and within God's boundaries. And that's actually how God designed us to be free, to live. He doesn't actually experience true freedom. He thinks he experiences freedom. But what's interesting is actually to consider the father's response to this desire to be free and, and ask the question, is the father's response to the son an act of love? By giving him all of this, is this love? Now, love gets defined and misdefined a lot in our day and age. Quite often and too often at its lowest form, love gets defined as take me as I am or you're a hater. But the love of the father here is expressed as I'm going to love you and I'm going to love you and give you the freedom to love me back. But I can't make you do it. And so the father allows him what he thinks is freedom. 
what the son discovers is anything but. And God gives us tremendous freedom in this world of his. Right? Let's not mistake the fact that God created this world. This world belongs to God. It doesn't belong to any one of us. Even those numbers in our bank account and the land that we live on and pay mortgages on and pay rent on and all that, that belongs to God ultimately, not to us. The air that we're breathing right now, that belongs to God. The lungs that we have and the capacity to do that, that belongs to God. And God gave us the gift of being able to, to live and breathe. The fact of the matter is, did anybody actually in this room or at home think this morning about the need to take a breath? Your body just did it. That's a gift from God. He gave us all of that, and that is what we would call God's common grace. He's continually at work and caring for his creation, whether we acknowledge him or not. He's given us all of these good gifts in the world to act and to live in this world, and even whether we realize it or not, he doesn't even let us feel the full effects of sin at this point. He restrains it, whether we realize it or not, even though we can face some of those effects now. But we're not saved by the fact that we simply exist. We're not saved by that common grace. God gives it to us, but God has, we can also misuse it, and we do, every single one of us. Thus, we're lost at that point, estranged from God. We go and waste it extravagantly, some of the good things that God gives. What we need is God's what's called efficacious, saving grace that he's won through Jesus Christ. That's what brings us back. That's the love of the Father that, and that we respond to, and then we are saved and brought back into right relationship with him. We heard that, Ephesians 2, this morning, when we were singing this morning together, uh, that we are dead in our transgressions, we're made alive in Christ. That's the freedom that God gives us, is the freedom to live in this world, but yet the freedom to choose him. God loves us, it turns out, extravagantly, giving us so many things and allowing us to choose to love him back. And we should recognize that love, we don't fall in love. Love is an act of the will. God chose to love us. That's why he created us. God gives us the freedom to choose to love him back. That's the one thing he can't control because love, by very definition, can't be manufactured or you can't be made to do it. You have to choose it. God loves his son. His, or the father loves his son here and God loves us and wants us to choose him. It's an act of the will. Second, if we go to verse 20, we can see that the father is compassionate. So we see the son has come to his senses, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. There's urgency and there's priority here. Uh, what do we say about the running issue? Again, there's a little scholarly misconsensus on this. Some people think the running was an undignified thing for a man uh, like the father to do. Probably that's the case uh, if you consider uh, kids and others could run in that culture. But an elder statesman um, of his community, a, a, a recognized pillar of his community in that culture, not necessarily something you do regularly. And we have to recognize that they wore basically what amounts to a dress. So if you're going to run in that, you got to hike it up, right? And sometimes tuck it in and bare your legs and run, which seems an undignified way for an elder statesman like that to behave in that culture. Interestingly, in the, the Africa Bible commentary, it was even pointed out about this, that God is the running God. He'll be a little undignified, in a sense, 
to welcome us home. God loves us that much. I love that imagery. But what we can say is the kisses, he gives them the hug and the kiss. The kiss of forgiveness, essentially, is what's going on there. Son, you're back, and I'm so happy. Let's make this right. Can you imagine the relief on the son at that point? He's been practicing the speech. It's probably one of the more humiliating things in his life that I wasted all this, now I've got to go back. And I'm not even going to be a slave, I'll be a servant, which doesn't even really have all the rights of a slave in the home of the father, if he'll even accept me back. Right? He practices the speech only to come back and be able to give like a line of it before the father says, that dispense with all that, let's kill the fattened calf, come on. And, and I would suggest, as you're reading the story, and I said, you've got to put yourself in the story, this is one of those moments in the story where you can find out, who am I in this story? You should do a pulse check at this point. Because as you read the story, we should actually, and I think Jesus intended this, feel some emotion here. We should feel the emotion of, oh, I'm so happy for this kid, finally, and the embrace. Or we should be feeling the emotion of, what gives him the right? But it's a good pulse check moment to feel the emotion of the story and find out who you are and where you are in the story. So let me give you a a reflection on this at this point, a question for you to ponder, a couple of them actually. In your life, what would an embrace from the Father mean? What would it mean for God to welcome you into his presence in such a remarkable, compassionate, and tender way? I was, uh, whenever pastors preach and bring up Father uh, in the text, um, there's a lot of sort of apologizing that goes on. It's sort of like, I know some people don't have good experiences with the fathers and some people do. And that's very important for us to recognize at this point. I I consider myself blessed. I have a good father who I I love very much. And I had good grandfathers who I respected and loved very much. Um, and I'm thankful that I had that. Some people have that, some people don't. But if I may just point out, even the best earthly father is not our heavenly father. I'm going to fall short with my kids. I already have. They could probably tell you where I've fallen short, but don't ask them. And then the worst father definitely falls short. But I was listening to this uh, podcast with one of my favorite church historians recently, Justo Gonzalez, who said, um, who's been writing about the Lord's Prayer. He just produced a book on it, and he was talking about that issue of father, and he said he was talking to a woman, because he's also a pastor, he was talking to a woman uh, under his care, who said she, I, she said, I had the worst father in the world, the absolute worst, abusive, awful father, and she said, it was the most wonderful thing the day I discovered that my heavenly father is my real father, and what a father's supposed to be. What would an embrace from the father mean? And then even further, you can see the question on the screen, This is a bit of the, uh, are you lost and are you far from God? And what parts of your life are unredeemed still? What what do you need to release so you can receive the kiss of forgiveness from the Father? What stops you from running home and letting him run to you? It turns out the Father celebrates when we come home. So go to verse 24. He says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. And what did they do? They began to celebrate. That's what the father does. The father celebrates. And we see right before that, when, when he kind of cuts him off from giving his speech, he says, hey, bring my robe out here. Bring my ring. Get some sandals for this guy. The robe and the ring kind of go together. Uh, they represent, the, and, and the best robe is what he asks for. That's probably his robe, the father's robe. Put that thing on him. What does that represent? Authority. He's restored in the household, basically, by doing that. You're a son, again, in the household, with the inheritance rights restored. Gives him the, the ring to put on his finger. The ring also comes with authority as well. Uh, John Barclay, the commentator, says it's basically like the power of attorney is what it is. To have that seal. He's a full-fledged member of the family, a son in good standing at this point, with all authority that comes with that. The sandals. He's also a son represented by the sandals. You're not a slave. You're not a servant. They don't necessarily have those things. You have that. You're a son in my home. A full part of the family, he says. And we can recognize, difficult as it is to recognize, a slave in that time would have had some rights. A servant really didn't. A servant was just a hired hand, just for that. And, and if you remember, the son was going to come back and be a servant. You know, he could be dismissed as easily as he could be hired. But the father says, no, no, not in my household. You're my son. You're restored. You came home. And then the fattened calf, right? Let's have a barbecue. He kills the fattened calf. Eating meat in the ancient world was often done at feasts or festivals. It wasn't really an everyday activity as a regular thing. It, it happened, and maybe if you had more money, you could eat more meat. But eating the fattened calf was definitely a rare thing. That was not a common occurrence. It's for special occasions. And so can you see, as the son comes home, he runs to the son, get my robe, get my ring, get the sandals, let's have a feast. The father's love is extravagant. When the lost returned, he celebrates and welcomes them home. Kiss of forgiveness. The embrace of a father who loves. And God wants the lost to be found. God celebrates when we choose him. And so to the question today is today, will you choose the love of the Father? We've been asking over the past few weeks, and we'll continue to ask this here, how goes your walk with Jesus Christ? That's really the question uh, behind all of this this morning. And so I actually want to take a little time in prayer. The band will come up in just a moment, but we'll take some time in prayer. Um, and I'll put a couple things before you so that you can actually... Uh, Ask for forgiveness, confess, but also ask to come close to Christ if you're feeling far from God this morning. Or if you don't know Jesus Christ, today's a good day to say yes. If you're feeling distant, today's a good day to begin that walk home. God celebrates when we come home. Let's pray together. Lord, give us the desire to come home where we feel lost, where we feel guilty, where we feel alone, where we feel separated from you and, and despondent in our guilt, like we can't come to you, like we're not good enough. God, dispel that myth, because that's a lie the evil one wants us to believe. You want us to come home. You want to put the robe on us. You want to give us the ring. You want to give us the full inheritance rights as your children. And when we're lost, we don't get any of that, Father. We waste ourselves thinking we're free when we're not. Thinking we're loved by you, knowing we're loved by you, but not recognizing and being able to experience the fullness of that love. So God, help us return that love today and walk home to you. If there are some of us who haven't said yes to Jesus Christ this morning, Lord, we say yes right now. Lord, there are some of us who are feeling distant because we know we have sins 
that weigh heavy on us, we lay those before you today. We set them at your feet, waiting for that tender kiss of forgiveness. Lord, forgive us. God, may we desire your embrace, the embrace of the Father, that we would come home and be your children again. Lord, may that be our reality. Let us not be lost, but found today. Amen.